We do live in a culture that is extremely fat phobic. You know, we are very much leaned and conditioned to say thinness is better. Thinness is more attractive. It's more desirable. What's up, everyone? It's your boy, Danny Lopriori, and welcome to Off the Cuff. You might know me as the guy from the Basement Yard, Vine, the Low Priori podcast. And while I love to make people laugh, just know that I've struggled with my mental health for most of my life, just like many of you. Here on Off the Cuff, I will be talking with some of the most impactful influencers, athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and mental health experts to have real, unapologetic conversations about mental health and breaking the stigma that surrounds it. This show is for you, and I'm so happy to have you here. Now, let's talk Off the Cuff. Welcome back to Off the Cuff. I'm your host, Danny Priori, and today my very special guest is Alicia McCullough. Alicia is a millennial licensed clinical mental health therapist. Say that three times fast. And the owner of Black and Embodied Counseling and Consulting, PLLC. Alicia, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good today, actually. You've got some good overall weather. It's still cold, but it feels good over here. How about for you? Uh, doing well. You know, you get that post-holiday lull a little bit, you know? Yes. You know what it is? It's like you get all up for Christmas. Yep. You're super hype. And then your your body like shuts down after. Yes, exactly that. It's like you're like working up to it and then your body's like, okay, I'm offline now. Yes, yes. I'm off the grid right now as much as possible. So the first question, first, thank you so much for coming and spending some of your valuable time with us. But the first question I wanted to ask is when it comes to being a millennial licensed clinical mental health therapist. See, I keep saying because I want to be able to say that as fast as possible at one point, because I feel like mental health stuff, right, especially in school curriculum, it's always evolving, right? Yes. So for it to be millennial, what kind of changes have you seen made throughout the curriculum? Yeah, that is an amazing question. When I think about the way current mental health curriculum or a treatment is structured, it still really aligns with a lot of the old age, um, westernized uh, ways that it was created. And so in my experience, there hasn't been a lot of like diversity or um, really any deviation from that, that way of that treatment model and that modality. And so what I've noticed is that even me being a millennial in the space, that that's been the thing that has um, allowed for me to be able to connect with clients in a different way. Also being a millennial, I came up in a time where there wasn't technology in the way that it was now. And then I was able to be a part of that digital age being brought into it. And so I think that like, for example, with the pandemic, even moving and doing virtual therapy, we probably never would have thought we'd be doing therapy over Zoom or a telehealth platform. And so I think just that ability to be able to adapt and, you know, um, move with the current events that are happening is a huge skill set that I think being a millennial really affords me. And so when I think about the way that I do therapy, I view it from that more updated lens, constantly keeping up to date with the way the trends and the way that, you know, the world is evolving and bringing that into the room as well. I'm 33. I'll be 34 in January. Mm -hmm. So it was like we were kind of the last era of you remembered all your friends like house phone numbers and stuff. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> you know, like uh, and to see the evolution has been, you know, crazy to even think about. And then like I start to think about my parents, like these people saw like the first like color television. Exactly. It's so crazy to think about what kind of pushed you towards this field. Was it something that you were passionate about as a child? Uh, was there a specific event that happened in your life? You were like, you know what? 
this isn't right. I need to help with this. Or was it something that, you know, because sometimes things just happen out of nowhere, right? Yeah, absolutely. Everybody's ethos and and Genesis uh, Genesis is different. You know what I mean? So like for you, what was what was the driving force in uh, your pursuit of this uh, profession. Absolutely. So for me, I found that I love talking to people. And so I'd, you know, have phone conversations with friends for hours and hours and they'd end the conversation and say, I feel so much better. or It was so good talking to you. And so I had this um, almost very, I would say, underdeveloped idea around what therapy meant. And so I was like, oh, well, I'll just like, you know, be a therapist. I just want to talk to people. I just want to help people, you know, like what most people who go to school to study psychology might say. And then I got into the actual psychology field and was like, wow, you know, like these are, there are actually, you know, disorders or there's names for, you know, what people are experiencing. And I think that was different for me because what I was experiencing on the day to day, there was no names for those things for anxiety or depression or family issues. It was just that these were just normal things as a part of being in the community. And so I think like being in mental health, that was when I got the language. That's when I really, quite honestly, didn't even see myself as someone in need of mental health or didn't even think about mental health until I got to graduate school and was studying counseling, which is really interesting because I studied psychology in undergrad and I just didn't see myself in the field because there was no representation. And so it took until I became like a therapist and started that training where I finally was like, oh, actually, these are things I've experienced. They just might look different or there's more context or there's the cultural pieces. But I think that was really the driving force. And that's when I said, I want to also then bring that culture into the work I'm doing with clients. And so, you know, I am very thoughtful about, you know, the holistic person that's showing up in the room, their history, you know, the culture, the social context, all of that really is important in thinking about um, how treatment goes or how healing goes for them. I think what you do is uh, very, very important. I'm going to get into why. And for me, I feel that when you hear about therapy being studied, in colleges, right? There's all kinds of studies that you see in college, right? You see Native American studies, you see African studies, but that's all just kind of a a singular scape. You know what I mean? You don't really think of mental health as a race thing. Yes. You know, especially when it comes to, you know, they teach you basic like psych 101. Right. Have you seen in your time in the field now uh, schools actually pushing for curriculum of how to actually treat certain diagnosis in different races? And have you seen anything in the analytics of where there are fundamental differences? Yeah. So I think that's an amazing question. And Danny, I think you really framed it well when you were first talking about just you go to psychology and you don't think that race or gender or class or any other social identity would be you know, a driving point. And I think that speaks to the way that the field, you know, has normed one experience, you know, of mental health. And so we don't think that there are other experiences outside of that, which I think speaks to why I didn't see myself represented there. You know, I will say in a lot of the programs that are, you know, PWI programs, which for folks that might not know, predominantly white institutions, I think those programs are still catching up. 
um, to thinking about diversity or thinking about, you know, social identity and how treatment models look different. I think for uh, programs that might be like minority based or HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, that those programs are heavily based in like, um, you know, whether that's black studies or, you know, some other thing. And so I think that it really does depend. And I really would like for more programs to incorporate and integrate those other lenses into the treatment. Cause I think that's what helps us work with different people. Like when we're just using this one format that might not be helpful for everyone, you know? And so I think having that background and having these other, you know, tools and skills is what really helps bring the work to life with the person you're working with that does have a different background than you. So I do, I would like to see more of it, but right now I think that we're still um, a bit behind, you know, in certain institutions. For sure. And then, you know, a lot of it I think about too is, especially in America, the more and more time goes on, the more and more mixed race children. There's going to be a whole generation where everybody's mixed at some point. It's just, just how it is. So for children though, do you think that in schools that have like guidance counselors and stuff, guidance should guidance counselors have representations from all walks of life in terms of, you know, um, because, you know, kids are more and more like advanced than ever. Yes, absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. you know whether, whether, whether a child is trans, um, yes. whether a child is fat, uh, skinny, whether a child is, uh, you know, like th- there's so many different things that certain kids might need counseling for growing up i feel this way i would always want somebody that represents me to help me in a sense absolutely yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah i agree and i think it is important that even as people are hiring like i think this is where it gets into more of the structural or systemic pieces around you know when people are hiring making sure that their staff is representative of the body that they're the student body that they're working with because it is important to see someone that, you know, might hold, like you said, a trans identity and you're going through something at school and you're like, I'm the only person here that's experiencing this or I'm being bullied, you know, because of this identity. And then you have this person you can go through to as a safe space that says, hey, I've been there with you. You know, I understand this experience and can talk through it. And it's not just for the folks that hold that identity, but I think it helps normalize the experience even within the school system for folks that might not hold that identity. It makes it more normal to say, hey, like people just exist like this. And it doesn't always have to be like they're the, for example, they're the black person here. It's that this is the guidance counselor here or this is the this person here. Right. So I think it helps even normalize the positions by having different representation. Correct me if I'm wrong, but obviously the trauma that. uh you know, black people have ha- gone through in this country is obviously, you know, if you opened a book in the last, uh, you know, 200 years, I would hope that, you know, that black people have been through some shit. Yes. I used to have friends in school and I would be like, you know, like maybe like you want to go talk to the guidance counselor and they would just be like, yeah, like I'm not talking to some white lady. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's real. Yeah. And I never really thought about like, I, I remember just being like, oh, but like she's a guidance counselor. And my friend who was black, he was like, I'm not going to go talk to some white lady. Yes. And I never really put like two and two together till I got a little bit older. And, you know, the more and more we do this show, we talk to people of all walks of life on here. But, you know, in predominantly black neighborhoods, mental health has just been a very difficult topic to uh, bring up. Yes. And especially amongst the black black males, too. Yes. Uh, you know, statistically. And then for you, though. What was the experience like for you growing up, like in terms of if you needed help with someone, did you feel more comfortable like 
talking to a person of color or like you didn't really care because I never really thought about it until I got older. And I was like, damn, like I didn't understand what he was saying at the time, but I feel him now because there's a disconnect there. Absolutely. I personally also, you know, relate to your friend in that I didn't feel comfortable going to my guidance counselor. And I'll say that for a variety of reasons, I think she was a white woman, but also there was like, for example, when it was time for me to apply for colleges, uh, she had told me like I had found some like um, historically black colleges that I was interested in. And when I went to um, talk to her about applying, she was like, no, those are bad schools. You don't want to go there. You want to apply to like um, these other schools, which were like all PWIs. And so there's these like small micro or maybe even macro, you know, experiences that kind of tell you, you know, like, hmm, this person, you know, has this bias and this is the way that they're interacting with me based on that bias. And a lot of times, even, and I'll say this being in the field, you know, for most therapists that are master's level therapists, we get one diversity class in our whole program. So we think about that around you have people who have lived experience for, you know, however many years before they enter this program and been conditioned and socialized, you know, around the normalcy of, you know, whether it's whiteness or heteronormativity or whatever. And literally, you know, they're, you know, coming into these programs. They don't have to like think differently about those things. They have one class and, you know, like college, you can get through, you know, some of those things without making big commitments to changing. And then now these are people that are out here doing the work, you know, working with kids, teens, adults, couples, groups, and there haven't been any changes for them in their own thinking and beliefs. And so I think that that is something I'd like to see changed as well. But I do think that students and people pick up on those dynamics when you're interacting with them. So for me, I didn't need, I didn't talk to anyone as a teenager. And I think part of it was because, like you were mentioning before, mental health has been stigmatized in Black communities. And you know, to be fair, there is a history in our in our country of, you know, Black people, especially after emancipation and slavery, being experimented on, like, for psychological, you know, reasons, been thrown into mental asylums, out, like, when they were, were um, free from slavery, instead of, like, hey, do y'all need a home? Or, you know, let's, like, get reparations or whatever. It was just, like, let's just throw these people in a, in a solemn because they're, like, houseless, you know? And so I think that like, these are the things that have led to a lot of stigma in community. And I don't think that our current structures are ready to contend with the realities of that. For sure. And I mean, even for American born Black men and women, right? Yeah. What would you honestly say, like the PTSD, you know, because if you really think about it, you know, depression is hereditary. Yes. It can be, and then it could obviously be external factors that happen. Yes. When dealing with, I know you can't talk specifically about patients, but is there certain things that you pick up on that you can honestly see that is more like of a wide range PTSD? Yes, absolutely. And specifically in Black community? Yes. Oh, absolutely. So um, I one of the ways I got introduced to this is through um, this amazing book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome by Dr. Joy DeGroove. And the book really exemplifies how, you know, because of the experience of slavery, and I would even say colonization, that there's been this embodied trauma, you know, that's been put into the bodies of Black people. And then, of course, even if we just think about it from just like you're being beaten, you're being, um, you know, treated very inhumanely, you know, you're experiencing being taken away from your culture, you know, you're in one place, you're just stolen and taken to another land. Those experiences live in our bodies. 
And like you said, and then they get passed down through biology, but also through our social learning and continue to go generations and generations and generations, especially when there's been no healing. And so I think that's when we get into that intergenerational trauma piece around there's a huge community of Black folks that, you know, have all this intergenerational trauma from these experiences and are just now, we're just now getting to the era where people are like, oh, it's okay to go talk to a therapist, you know? Right. But we haven't still like addressed like all of the historical pieces that are keeping people from going. So I do think that that is a a huge um, concern. And I do see that a lot in my clients is that, you know, there'll be specific experiences. Like a good example that Dr. Joy DeGruy talks about in her book is, for example, when during the time where an enslaver would try to sexually assault, you know, a, a child, you know, and the mother would often like talk down and degrade the child to protect the child from the slave owner. So she would say things like, oh, they're not that smart or you don't want to like talk to them, you know, just to protect that child. But if, you know, outside of that context, if parents are talking down to children in this way, you know, still using this intergenerational pattern, now it's like the child feels like I just have a negative, you know, mother who like hates me or, you know, doesn't really want to like lift me up. Now I'm insecure, but I don't have the context for where that pattern started. And so I think that's what I've seen a lot in the room is like all of these like um, subconscious or, you know, unseen patterns that have just like carried forward. And my role is like, naming those and exploring those with folks and saying, you know, does this serve us, you know, anymore? And if it doesn't, let's work on healing it from a body level, you know, so that we can fully be free and experience that healing that we're deserving of. You know, that's a great point because I always think of, I think of things, uh, this is just the way my mind works is I have to think of things on like, uh, the base level, right? Yes. You were saying like getting getting obviously robbed of your of your culture and and robbed of your language. Yes. It's it's almost one of those things cuz we speak English. Yes. Mhm. So like that has become like uh you know in a weird sense it was forced to be our mother tongue. Yes. You know, and it's kind of crazy that we kind of just all accepted that at one point. Mhm. Mhm. Absolutely. You know, it's just little stuff like that I'm just like, "Oh wow, it's like we're having these arguments about not some arguments, but mostly discussions, I would hope nowadays. Yes. And we're speaking English. And it's always been something that was like, damn, dude, like we came, we came uh, here from England. Yep. Right. Decided to keep English. Then we brought slaves here. Yes. And then we taught them English because they had to learn English. That was it. They didn't have a choice. And then we made them, you know, believe in our gods and our stuff. If you really think about all of that stuff, slavery wasn't that long ago in the spectrum of, uh, you know, the planet. If you really think about it. Yes. Mm -hmm. For you, is it hard to deal with like, damn, I wish I didn't have to speak English. That's like, that's just the way like I look at stuff like on a base level. It's like, damn, these motherfuckers got me. This shit sucks. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Accurately. And I say that because, like you said, I just want to really amplify what you said around slavery wasn't that long ago. Actually, my grandparents that I spent Christmas with recently, they talk about growing up in segregation all the time. Like they talk about those experiences. Unreal. Right. You know, we wouldn't, you know, experience that now, but that was a reality for them. And like even um, their parents, you know, were one generation removed from slavery. And I knew my great grandparents. So it is very, you know, it's very 
recent, you know? And I would agree with you and say, like, I do find it a struggle that I'm speaking this language and I can't directly, now I can. So I will say that maybe most Black people, you know, we don't say, oh, I'm from this specific part, you know, and this is the exact, within that part, here's the tribal group that I was a part of. And here's what language we were speaking, right? There's grief in that. I will name that. There's grief in that. For me, you know, I'm very blessed and privileged that I've had the experiences now where I can like do DNA testing and I spend a lot of my time doing ancestry things. And so I've been able to trace it back, some of my um, cultural groups back. And I've been, you know, um, a part of relearning the language and things. But think about just how much effort that is. If you have to live in this society oh as kids yeah. <laughs> and then also do all of that too, you know, like it's an added layer of living that's just like, why must I do this? It shouldn't be this way. Just to, to piggyback off what you're saying is, especially now, you know, I just listed off a, a ton of things of, you know, historically known American events, to put it nicely. Yes. How do you deal with like kind of this new age, like white guilt? Yeah. You're a millennial therapist. How do you deal with the millennial white guilt? <laughs> Yes, this is an amazing question, actually. It's difficult because the thing that I think gets me is that there's this thing of like white people are starting to wake up and realize like their actual history, because I think there's been a, you know, an effort to hide the true history of America, you know, the legacy of everything that's occurred. And so I think, you know, now with the rise of Internet and of course, with 2020, I think for sure really ramped things up where white people were like, oh, like these things really happened. And like, oh my God, this is what racism is and white fragility, you know, like all these things, right? And what I found is then they come, a lot of folks come to black people and are like, oh, we're so sorry. Well, can you help us? Can you can you help heal us? Like even for me as a therapist, I had a lot of um, white clients reaching out to me specifically being like, um, it's 2020. I just recognized my father was racist and I want to process that with you in therapy. And I want you to do a lot of like the, you know, coddling me as I'm like going through this process. And so there's this duality there of like, how do you hold space for your experience as a black person and everything you went through and your people have went through? And also like when you're in a role like a therapist, you can't just say, I'm not going to show up and do this, you know? So like. Right. But to your point, though, it's like you didn't you didn't get like your master's to be like a black nanny. Yeah, it, that's that part. Yes, absolutely. That. Yes. Yes. To that point. Absolutely. That. Yeah. And that's often enforced, you know, because of that white guilt. You know, there's this like force of it. And when you're like, no, I'm not doing that. That's when you get all of that defense around. Well, why not? Like, didn't you want us to learn about racism? You know, like all of that, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like, do you really want to do it? Or are you just saying because you feel like bad? Everything's very selfish. You know what I mean? Yes. Mm-hmm. It comes from a certain, you know, and I, I remember having this conversation with a couple of friends growing up and just being like, I would I would ask them straight, like straight. Out, I'm like, dude, what's it like to be black? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and they would just be like, you know what? I remember my, my, my friend, one of my friends, I even have this conversation with my friends now. So like for one and one, we have. um two guys that run it, Thomas Drew and Corey Lewis. Yeah. They're both black men. And I was just like, yeah, like every once in a while, I'll ask them, like, uh, just be like, dude, what's it like to be black? Yeah. Just like, help me understand the most that I can, because I'll never understand. Yes. But I'm like, just like, what's it like? Yes. You know, like, I really want to hear your story and your part. And a lot of the times you're like, you know what? No one's asking that question. 
Exactly. Yeah. No one asks. You know, like pe- people aren't comfortable to ask those questions. I'm like, dude, you got this. The only way that you can learn is by asking questions. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I asked them in grade school form because that's the only way that I could process them. I feel like those are like more conversations that I hope people make more normal than just being like, oh, I'm so sorry, like that we did this. Exactly that. You know, put, put the time in. You know, ask some questions. It doesn't take that much to just ask a question. And plus, especially me, it's like I'm half Puerto Rican, half Italian. Yes. So I saw like racism within my own family. And it was always something that I was very interested in in terms of just being like, damn, like how am I supposed to love this person when they like don't like this person? I've heard them say these certain things and hear these certain things. And then as I got older, I'm so influenced by african-american culture and you know caribbean american culture there's a lot of stuff there i'm like listen like i can't enjoy this stuff fully if i don't really know and do some of the research of uh, whether it's an author an athlete a musician it's like i want to know people's like genesis and then i think that's the most beautiful part about it is is when people want to actually put the time in and the effort Absolutely that. And I just, you know, two things to what you said, the first being that I think it's really important that you're in touch with your own culture as well. Like, because I find too, that a lot of folks will like grab onto these other things to avoid like their own, you know, historical. Yes. Yes. And so I think it's really important that you're holding space for like the complexity and the nuances and the, you know, the dynamics, even within your own culture, while also saying, hey, here's a culture that has been historically oppressed and marginalized. Let's lift that up and learn more about it, you know? And so I think that's really important. And even when it comes to like, when we're talking about white people, for example, I want to just make it known that, you know, when we think about these issues that we have, like, they're really white to white issues, you know, like the whole issue was that, you know, Europeans were having their own like class and, you know, other issues over there. And then because, you know, there was a lot of oppression within that, they came over and then colonized everywhere else and then imported, you know, those beliefs and those values and that way of being into the bodies of so many other people. And so I think that there's this reality of like white people have to contend with other white people. And like you said, continue to uplift and learn more about these other groups that have been affected, you know, by this dynamic. It was almost the white version of keeping up with the Joneses. Yes. People kind of make excuses like, you know, oh, like these were the times and like this is what was happening or like, you know, uh, human beings, uh, you know, were animals and we have animalistic traits. I would always my argument would always be I've never seen a dog take a cat and make it do its job. Right. <laughs> you know, I said, you know, yes. we're a little, you know, we're, we're giving humans a little bit of a break here. We're a, l- yes. we're a little more advanced than that. Uh, because if that was it, the president would be a dog. You know, we'd be dealing with some different circumstances here. I wanted to pivot really quick. So another thing that I'm very interested that um, in what you take part in, and this is the reason why I'm a hefty boy myself. And for me, I have a very hard time. We all just tricked you just to get a free session. Okay. Uh, so th- th- this is how we do it. I am a comfort eater. Mm-hmm. But my thing is, is I have a very hard time with portion control. Yes. Mm -hmm. How does someone start the process of maybe, is it like a weaning process? Cold turkey doesn't work for me. No. In anything. Yes. For someone like me, who genetically, I'm from my mother's Puerto Rican side and they're a little more, they're a little more thick on that side. Yes. You know what I'm saying? So I, I, I have those genes. 
how does someone like me that struggles with portion control or someone in the audience that struggles with portion control, do you have any tips for us? Because I feel like I could still emotionally eat, but eat the right stuff, right? I hear you. I hear you there. This is amazing. So, you know, and just for context, right? So I, within therapy, I specialize within eating disorders and disordered eating and body image, body liberation, all of those words. So I think that's really helpful that you've asked this question. Now, when it comes to comfort eating, I will say that I take a different approach. And so when I think about comfort eating, I think about that being, that's the food of our ancestors, right? That we've often been yes. disconnected from. Like, even for you, you're talking about having this Italian rich background of like lots of good food, Puerto Rican background, oh, yeah. being amazing, also very much influenced by Black culture, you know? So like- yes deep history, right? And so there's a reason why you're eating those foods because there's a connection there. And so I do this thing where it's like, how do I depathologize or destigmatize my relationship with food in this way that honors that legacy and that history? And also honors that like, I mean, as a part of us having hormones, like we we have different cravings, we have different things we want. Tell me about it. We came back from a trip yesterday and uh, my fiance's uh, father's lasagna is outrageous. Yes. And we found out that it got destroyed on the drive. I'm an Italian American boy. But once I found out that the lasagna was destroyed, my entire day was ruined. Yes, absolutely. So, like I, 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 I so I 100% agree with everything you're saying. Yes. So I, I, yeah. So it's true. I need the the audience to know that this is true. It's very true. Absolutely. And I think like the questions to ask yourself would be, you know, as I'm as I'm eating this item, you know what's happening in my body for me. And so you can start to notice like, you know, is this connected to a specific emotion? Am I feeling grief? Am I feeling sadness? Am I feeling joy? And then where is the link between like, how are those things being linked? Why is this lasagna, for example, being mm. linked with, you know, um, a sad experience now that it's gone? Maybe it was happy before. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so it's true. getting into that, right? And And then, so that's the first part with the comforting. I say, you know, Shifting our narrative around what comfort eating is. Now with the portion control. I'm writing this down. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Take the notes. I'm writing, I'm, I, yeah, I, I need them. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm cheating a little bit, but I have to. <laughs> Change the eating narrative. I love that. And then with the portion piece, I would say this. So oftentimes we find, and you let me know what you let me know how you feel about this based on what you're describing. Do you have this relationship where it's almost like you feel, and I'm just using this term because I hear it a lot with clients, out of control with portions or, you know, as if, you know, it's almost like you set out to do one thing and then you're eating more than what you planned on eating, those type of things? That and I, my thing is, uh, my fiance calls them second dinners. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'll eat dinner mm -hmm. and then throughout the night, I'll know that the food is there. Yes. And it's almost like I get abducted by aliens. Like, I don't even remember the process of like heating it up. I do, but I suppress it. Like, I know I'm not supposed to be eating it. So I'm suppressing it and just being like, oh, I don't know. It just happened. Like, I just ate it. Like, like it was an accident. Like a magician, like put the food into my stomach. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel that just growing up, our portions were huge because my dad cooked for an army. Yes. So my dad would literally like, put food on the table and it was like survival of the fittest, like get what you can now yes. before it's all gone. Yes. And I've never gotten rid of that eating mindset. There you go. And, and my, my father would be uh, more, more my mother, but my father would, would hate if we didn't finish food. Mm -hmm. Yes, 
Absolutely. Because they grew up, you know, in a situation where my father's father was an Italian immigrant. My mother's mother was a, a Puerto Rican immigrant. So they used to have to steal bread to survive. Absolutely. Like well, my grandfather was around in like World War II, like watching his like his city get blown up and shit. Yes, exactly. So he used to make them finish all their food. And if they didn't, I'm sure you could guess what happens. Yes. So they kind of that trickled down generationally generations to us. And I feel bad if food is not finished. Like if I see food out, it needs to be gone. It's so crazy. That makes so much sense. So you, when you're talking about it, reminded me of the study that might be helpful. So there was a study done on mice and it was really to examine like food relationship. And so they would starve the mice, you know, how we do experiments here, starve the mice. And then they would um, study the offspring of those mice. And so the offspring of those mice also dealt with um, malnutrition and starvation, despite never being starved. And then this passed down like two generations forward. So what you're referring to is like, you know, where you've experienced this starvation and this deprivation with food. And then, you know, it's just inherited, you know, generationally through like that biology. And so for you, it's like, you know, you have this meal and now you're still operating out of the trauma of your great grandfather or your grandfather and thinking like there's not enough, even though you currently live in a state of abundance, you know, where you can probably get food when you want. Oh my God. Yeah. Right. Any, any time of night I'm in, New, I'm in New York, so you can get it. Oh yeah. You can literally get a newborn. You can get a newborn baby on Postmates. Like, exactly. It's just like, a- <laughs> Exactly that. Right. And so that's the thing. And so I think like what it is, is this inherited pattern that's become embodied for you Um, or for people that deal with this going into the body and working with the body to, you know, create safety and release that pattern around like we're no longer in survival mode anymore. Like your body goes into that fight, fight, freeze and letting know it's not in survival. Yes. anymore. And so that's one thing. And just one more thing here around this is that overall, like we have this culture that's really big in diet culture. I don't know if you all have heard of diet culture, but this culture based in yes. friction and, you know, um, the slim ideal and thinness and all this stuff. And because of that, we, you know, often monitor ourselves very heavily. We might restrict food. We might forget to eat because we're working and all of these things. And so what often happens with our bodies is that in response to any, you know, state of restriction, we then go into the opposite side of that and might do what some people might label as overeating or binge eating, you know, in response to that starvation. And over time, you know, starvation and dieting does actually lead to long-term weight gain. Of course, the, you know, diet industry is not going to tell you that, but you know, it does when you're restricting and then having these like these cycles of then going into like the eating, binging or overeating or just eating to nourish your body in the way it needs in that moment. So yeah, Yeah. it's, layered for sure my thing is i'm a big fan of blood tests now yes if the blood test says i'm doing good that means i can keep doing what i'm doing yep now if the blood test says i'm not doing well then we got to change some things yes i'm very science-based when it comes to a lot of things yes so i go to my doctor like every like four months three months and get my blood taken and then i'm like okay so we're doing something right let's stick with this yes I used to go to the doctor and say, oh, I'm good now. Now I'm going to eat whatever I want. You have to keep it. And uh, again, my fiance is always like, you have to eat normal. You can't just do a crash diet because it's not going to be good for your body. And you're just going to end up where you were three months ago. And you did all that work because you wanted to do this weird diet. Exactly. If I ate less, I'd be in a lot better shape. No pun intended. Yes. So that's like the hardest thing for me. The other thing, too, I wanted to ask you is what's your response to people that 
look at uh, Ashley Graham, right? And the critics of uh, somebody who's uh, promoting body uh, positivity. Yeah. Saying that, ew, she's gross. She's not healthy. To go back to my point about the blood test, we don't know. It's, it's you know what I mean? We don't know. Yeah. Because the other thing is, if you go by a BMI calculator, there's guys in the NFL that are 5'9", 220, and they don't have an ounce of fat on them, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. they're obese. Mm-hmm, so like, right. we have to do away with the BMI calculator, mainly because it never agrees with me. And then also the BMI calculator has got it. That's got to be ancient. We shouldn't even be going by that anymore. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm really excited to talk about that. So, <laughs> so firstly, BMI was developed by this dude, this mathematician, and it wasn't even intended to be used through the healthcare system. It was just developed as like as a measurement of like, you know, just like we would measure does someone have a, you know, a long middle finger or freckles yeah. or red hair, right? Like it was just it was like a like a fat hypothesis. Yeah. And and the thing, (laughs) right. And the thing about it is like, it was normed on white men during that time. And like that, no one ever deviated from that. And so the insurance companies, however, picked it up. Like, I think it was in 19, I want to say it was like in the sixties, they picked it up and were like, oh, we can use this to, you know, raise premiums to disqualify people from healthcare, you know, like all the things, right. Life insurance, a ton of stuff. Yeah. Absolutely that. And, you know, now it's just employed where like, if you go into your doctor, you step on the scale, it's a certain level based on the BMI. And now they're just labeling you as whatever. But like you said, they don't know about, you know, what's deeper beneath, like, like, what are your actual blood markers? Or, you know, how has your mental health been this month? Or what's your levels of stress? And how is that affecting your cortisol? Or what are your hormones? Like all those things that are actually based in yeah. health. Thyroid, social- bone density, genetics. Yep, absolutely. And even things like your zip code, like that basis, you know, that's based on what you have access to when it comes to food or clean water, you know, so like, those are things that folks are not thinking about when it comes to health. And so I'd like for us to really expand out what we define as healthy. And I do want to name like going back to the Ashley Graham thing, you know, we do live in a culture that is extremely fat phobic. You know, we are very much leaned and conditioned to say thinness is better. Thinness is more attractive. It's more desirable. And there's a book out, Fearing the Black Body, that goes more into depth with um, more scientific research around how we got there. But we do live in this very fat phobic society. And so when people see folks like Ashley Graham just living her life or Lizzo, um, there's so many. And so like when people see those folks living their life, they're like, oh, that person's unhealthy. And why are they, you know, I'm walking around marketing, quote unquote, obesity or something like that. Like, you don't know this person, but you've been conditioned to view fatness as being bad and, you know, unhealthy and all this, all these things. And you immediately just associate that with this. And so I would also like for us as a culture to just get more critical about like how we make judgments or assessments about things. Well, that's the other thing too. It's like your influences are what's put in front of you, right? So Mm-hmm. You know, if you see these guys in these Marvel movies and like doing all and the rock and shit, and it's like, you know, these guys are on steroids. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And if you got paid $20 million to go to the gym every day and didn't have to worry about anything else, and you had some dude cooking you meals to wake up at 4 a.m. to eat it, like we'd all be straight too. It's kind of like what, like, you know, straight in terms of like, the ideal body. A lot of people don't really understand how important genetics are. If I want to have a certain size, like I have broad shoulders. Yes. It would be hard for me to get broad shoulders if I genetically didn't have broad shoulders. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I've always had a fat butt. Mm-hmm. 
ain't going nowhere. Yep, natural. You know, this is it's just one of those things. Yeah. And like uh you were like you were saying before, there's a lot more scientific stuff. And I think it's hard, you know, especially like you said, you brought up zip codes. Like, how is somebody from a low-income neighborhood gonna go get a body scan? Right. They're thinking about surviving. They're thinking about surviving. And then the other thing too is I bring up genetics a lot. If you really go back to slavery in this country, right? I had a when we were growing up, we would be like, uh, when you're kids, you go, why is everybody in the NBA black? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and, and then we would ask ourselves that and just being like, you know, as a kid, you don't really understand because you're looking. And it's like, oh, my God, Michael Jordan can fly, dude. And then you, when you get to a certain age, you're like, oh, wait a second. Everyone out there is black. Mm-hmm. Yep. NFL majority of, the, of the, every player on the team is black. Exactly. Yep. We have to understand that there's a direct correlation to that to slavery and professional athletes being where they are today. Yeah. And it's the only thing that always bothered me too is like, and then they're owned by like all white people and shit. So it's weird. Mm-hmm. And it's just older. The older I get, the more I look at it. I'm just like, damn, like kind of got away with it again in a sense, but it's like, you know what I mean? But we'll pay, we'll pay you $40 million. There's a, there's a difference now. Exactly. Danny, you're on it. Like I'm telling you in some ways, and again, not to generalize, but the culture of sports to be like the new plantation, right? Where you have these guys like, you know, let's just set the scene. So like when we're thinking about the plantation, you know, a part of it too was like entertainment for white people. It was definitely a lot of the brutal work for sure, but there was also pieces around the entertainment. And so, for example, they bring you know, guys to black men together, get them drunk and then make them like fight each other. Like in that. Oh, like, yeah. The uh, Mandingo fighting they used to yes, do. Yes. There we go. Yeah. The, in the brute culture. Right. And so that has translated now into the way that who are mostly the people consuming sports, you know, and I, I don't have the stats here in front of me, but I'm going to assume based on, you know, watching sports and going to different, you know, arenas that mostly males, you know, historically, you know, white males, you know, of course there's all races, but mostly white males are consuming these things where you have black men out on the field, throwing their bodies around. And like you said, you're getting paid $40 million, but you know, think about the impact to your body. Like you're, it's almost like they're like replaceable, you know, like once you get an injury and you're done. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're going to try and find somebody else to replace you immediately. That's how it works. Exactly. That exactly. And so you're so right. Like that correlation and connection there is so strong. And now it's just this like, um, you know, enjoyable form of just like, yeah, this is normal. We just, you know, want this and this is okay. You know? Because you want to know how it dawned on me. There was a family member of mine. I'm not going to say their name, but they were they were quite racist. I remember I was like, oh, he was like, oh, hey, like, what's up? Like, do you want to what are you doing next couple of days? And I was like, oh, I'm going to the Knicks game. Yeah. And he was older family member. He goes, oh, the black circus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I was like, what the fuck is he talking about? Yeah, exactly. And then, like, as I got older, I was just like, oh, this is he's looking at of the lens from what you're saying. Mm-hmm, exactly that. And a lot of it starts with PWIs, right? Yes. Because they'll say, hey, what's up, man? Oh, you can't read because whatever situation, that's fine. You can come play basketball at this PWI yes. and you go here for a year and, the, and then, you know, we'll get you to the league if that's how you want to do it. But you got to remember, majority of these guys don't make it. The NBA, yes. there's 12 people on a team. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. There's billions of people in the world. They have people from all over the world playing in the NBA now, right? So it's if you really think about it, your chances of making it are so small. Yes, yes. 
And it's weird that we do have these institutions in place where we take like the highest caliber and then make them like compete against each other. (laughs) Exactly. I love sports. I love sports. Maybe it's maybe it's the white guilt talking. But it's just like sometimes I have those moments. I was like, is anybody like really seeing like the actual origins of what's going on here? As long as we all have an understanding, I'm cool with it, I guess. Exactly that. You're right. And I think like, here's the thing too, like there's not a lot of choice. Like I'm really big on like, you know, I think that choice and agency do, you know, help heal trauma. But here's the thing. There's not a lot of choice. So, you know, people might be familiar with the school to prison pipeline where, you know, that school is structured specifically towards black kids. Um, and I would say black males are definitely affected, you know, where it's like they're negated in class, you know, they're isolated or not paid attention. Oh, yeah. To all the things. Right. And so you have this and then you're now you're in what is it? Twelfth grade. And your options are what? Um, go to the military. Or go play a sport. Like Biggie said, though, it's like it's either you you sling crack rock or got a wicked jump shot. Yes. And that comes from somewhere. That comes from somewhere. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to what you said about zip codes. It's so crazy how everything is so connected in the universe. I mean, I could talk about it for hours. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then, like, you know, they use words like, and I've been guilty of this, too. Like, oh, he's a specimen. Yeah. He's an athletic freak. You know, like, and then I'm just like, oh, do I really want to be saying that, though? You know what I mean? It's because, you know, th- that's like the the stuff that's been ingrained in our mind because we idolize athletes. You know, we idolize athletes. We idolize actors. Yes. You know, we idolize all of these things. And then it's you if you really peel the layers back, I'm like, like I said, I'm a big science guy. So I'm like, there's scientific reasons in evolution here that we're just kind of just bypassing over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it always made me in a way feel like, uh, you know, that's kind of like a racist way of thinking to like be thinking about it. But I'm like, dude, it's science, though. Yeah, exactly that. Right. You know, in a sense. Yep, it is. It totally is. And it's like all of these things are so interconnected. Science, race, all the things. Oppor- like, opportunity. All- yep. When it comes to the human body. Yeah. Is everybody different in terms of the way they digest food yes because like bellies bellies are like snowflakes right yes exactly that which is why they're so it's so weird to me that there's this like narrative of like you know people telling people to eat a certain way like when people say things like eat this many calories like everyone should eat this many calories well everybody's body's different so like you might eat 800 calories and you're okay but for me i might need like three thousand. you know like i don't know yeah you know? It depends. Right. And so like just that idea that we just standardized everything and said, this is the way it goes when it's like, no, like, listen to your body. What does your body need in this moment? And so like, but that requires for us to slow down to check in where we're like, wait, is my stomach growling? Do I have a headache right now? Like, you know, am I feeling irritable? You know, those symptoms that come up when we're experiencing hunger oftentimes. And I think sometimes we bypass that because we live in this fast pace, you know, we are currently under a capitalist society where we're on to the next thing, on to the next thing, doing more, doing more, doing more, being more productive. And we don't really like have a lot of training on like slowing down and being in our body and asking those questions of like, what's happening for me right now. So like, in my experience, I set alarms where I will literally have an alarm set of like, check in, have you drunk any water today? Have you had oh, a that's snack? good too. I'm a, uh, let me write that down. Go ahead, write that down. Write that down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta steal that. Yeah. Throughout the day. I never thought about that. 
because it's hard. Like when you don't do that, it's so hard to keep up with it because everything's just moving so fast. And I also forget I'll eat breakfast and forget I, I ate breakfast and then I'll eat again. Yeah. Yep. Exactly that. Right. Exactly. That's a part of it. To just like go off what you're saying. It's so crazy how different everybody is. Yes. Yes. Everybody. Mm-hmm. Individualism. It's really what as cliche as it is, it's what works for you works for you. Yes, it is exactly that, right? Like for you, you might be able to eat like ice cream, right? And you might be great. Me as a lactose intolerant person, it's over. You're going to have a long night. This is the last question. Then I have the black and embodied counseling. Yes. And consulting. Yes. When did you start this company? And how have you seen it kind of grow since like 2020? So everybody remembers 2020, obviously, as the uh, the COVID. But I also see it as, uh, you know, is the year of some traumatic things happen, you know, with George Floyd and then also the rise of of the BLM movement and multiple things going on. A lot of stuff were going down in the streets when people were not supposed to be outside in the streets. You know what I mean? So when did you start your company and how much growth have you seen in it, especially since 2020 and, you know, the, the actual George Floyd incident? How have you seen the growth in your consulting? Yeah, that's amazing. So before starting my company, I'll just give a brief background. So I was working in college counseling at a university, PWI. And um, my experience of working there was I was definitely making an impact working within eating disorders, working around racial justice. However, for me, it's like um, within the institution, I wasn't able to make much change on the back end. So we've talked about so far today around like the things that are right there in your face, which are the clients and the techniques that you use with them and how you're showing up in the room. But then you have those like more institutional and systemic things of like, well, what happens when the client leaves the room? Like, you know, who are your colleagues and your boss and how is that working? And so I was finding I was getting a lot of pushback around trying to bring more, you know, diversity or anti-oppression into the workplace. And it became to a point where it started taking a toll on my own mental health. And so for me, I decided, okay, I need to leave this environment because I can't even speak up or even, you know, share an idea without it being put down. And so I decided to leave and move into a group private practice setting, which I means essentially I was working at someone else's group private practice and I was a contractor there and then 2020 hit. And so I was already on Instagram posting, you know, different experiences I was having and yeah, your page was- is very successful. Uh, thank you. I, thank yeah. you so much. Yes. Yes. I was posting. And again, I, at the time I didn't have many followers. I had maybe like 7,000 followers, you know, and 2020 happened. And a friend of mine actually out in LA, she decided like, Hey, like we've been in the eating disorders field It's heavily, you know, white, and we're not really being seen or heard. We both were like, you know, talked about our experiences of that. We said, why don't we create this movement, amplify melanated voices to really, you know, highlight the ways that black, indigenous people of color, brown folks, you know, where we also deserve for our voices to be at the forefront. We deserve for our issues to be seen, you know, and so we created this movement. And essentially what we asked folks to do was follow the pages of black, brown, indigenous people of color creators, you know, for just this week, mute the white noise that you're usually used to hearing. When you think of like anorexic, you think of like a skinny white girl. Yes, you do. Yep. Which is kind of weird now that I think about it. I never really thought of it like that exactly that it's like oh she's bulimic you don't think of a person of color you think of just like some white girl in the bathroom exactly that right exactly yep yep and we were noticing that and so we said 
let's, you know, have a week, only a week, right? Only a week where you, you know, follow these other providers and people that are doing this work and just listen to their stories and understand a little bit more about their backgrounds. And literally, you know, it was right around the same time as the racial uprisings and it blew up. Like I remember I went to bed and I had the 7,000 ish followers. I woke up, my phone was going off. And next thing I know, I'm moving up 20,000, 30,000, 50,000, a hundred thousand. Well, what is happening? And everybody's resharing this movement and, you know, people from everywhere. I mean, I had folks from Germany and folks from Canada and the UK, everyone reaching out being like, how do we get involved in this? Is this a part of Black Lives Matters movement? How, what do we do with this? You know, and so it gave people, I think, an actionable item to do during that time. And I think it allowed us to really listen to each other and say, what do you actually need? Like, who are you as a person? What is your experience here? And I saw it across every sector, not only the eating disorders field, but people that were in like big corporations and business and like Fortune 500 companies, like saying, hey, like actually we want to bring in more black speakers. And so for me, I noticed that during that time I was getting all these folks reaching out being like, come on my podcast, come do this consultation, come do this panel, you know, can you do this? And I knew that I wanted to legitimize my business. And that's where Black and Embodied came from because, you know, I already had the page and I said, it's important for me to also have a space that's mine and also have a space for folks to come to. And so that's where Black and Embodied was birthed was through that process of like, I need my own thing. And, you know, people are reaching out with opportunities and I also need to legitimize this, you know, living. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Well, I tell people all the time, if you're good at something, never do it for free. The Joker said it very well. It's the truth. The other thing I wanted to say, though, too, is as a black woman. Yes. Where do you think like uh, Black Lives Matter can be better? Where do you think they need like it needs work? Are there things that you like, things that you wish could be better in in the movement? Because the movement blew up. You know, I mean, it it took the world by storm. And now it's kind of, you know, a couple of years later after George Floyd and, you know, many places we could be here all day talking about, you know, absolutely police injustice here. Yes. Where would you like to see Black Lives Matter, whether people like it or not, is at the forefront of social injustice. Everybody knows about it. What would you like to see growth in that that particular movement? Yeah, this is a great question. I will say that I have found that with it, when it comes to these like bigger organizations, that a lot of it has been focused purely on activism. So we're so used to like historically fighting. We're always like, fighting for something, you know, and that's important to fight. We should, we should continue to keep that energy, you know, of the fight. Also, I think that what we're missing is the healing. And that's where I think I come in and other folks that are doing this work is that healing work around, you can fight all day and that is important, but when you're fighting, that's having a toll on your body, you know? And so we cannot also, you know, fight the same systems and then replicate those systems within our bodies. Like the system, for example, when we're saying we want to dismantle, you know, this hyper productivity culture, we can't say that. And then also be like out here on the front lines at every single movement and not giving ourselves time to rest and recuperate, you Mm. know? And so I think about like, you know, what ways now do we start to heal our bodies and our communities? And I think the focus, you know, moving the focus into like these very, structured resources around mental health, around financial, you know, wealth and, you know, accessibility and and food security and, you know, um, all of these things I think are really important for us to focus on when it comes to the other pieces around like, you know, addressing white supremacy and culture and things like that. That's important. But again, like I was saying earlier, 
those are like white on white issues to really work through. You know, as Black Lives Matter and as a community, we have to focus on what are the things within our communities that we need, like direly need right now. And then how right, do we yeah. like support those things? How do we pour our resources into those things? Well, you, you got to be the best version of yourself to fight the best yes. fight, right? Yes. You know, absolutely. It, if you look at it as a, if a fighter goes into a fight, he's going to, tra- if he's a really good one, he's going to train the best that he can so he can fight the best. Yes. There's my mansplanation uh, to myself there. Where do you see yourself, like, not just a five-year plan of being, like, business. So, like, when I hear people say five-year plans, right, they're always talking about, oh, like, my business, this and that. I'm just talking about you all-encompassing you. Yeah. What do you want to make of your life in the next three to five years? Absolutely. So I'm a big impact person. I feel that one action, you know, like, for example, someone listening to this podcast, they might feel validated and that might, you know, spark them to do something creative, which then influences a whole community of folks. So I'm really big into that impact work and how like through the work I do within myself, how is that then resonating for other folks and then coming and rippling out into the collective? And so one of the things is that I'm currently working well, finishing up a book called Reclaiming the Black Body. It is um, very nice. Thank you. Thank you. It's going to be huge. It's really based on like eating disorders and black communities and the trauma and the embodiment, all the things we've been talking about alongside unpacking the healing work as well. And so that'll be coming out, you know, in the next year. And so I'm really excited about that. And then outside of the writing work, I'm really also excited about and I'm going to use this scenario to explain it. So I think when I think about my ancestors and all that they endured, I think that oftentimes people get really caught up in becoming like this black successful person, which is amazing, right? You know, you get the degrees, you get the titles, you get the certifications, you become like the big person. That's cool. But I think about, you know, what would my ancestors want most for me? What is liberation? And what would they dream of that would be like, wow, dreams back then? And I'm like, they would want for me to rest. You know, they would want back then they didn't have time to go to sleep. They didn't have time Chilling. to you yeah. know, chill and travel and the experience culture. Right. And I'm like, that's what I'm going to do. So these next couple of years for me, I have plans already to go to Sierra Leone, which is where my maternal um, ancestry um, has started and just visit the lands and walk and see what I feel. I'm really excited about just traveling and learning about other cultures. I'm going to start studying, like seriously studying Spanish. So I'm excited about just those experiences and resting. And so for me, it's like, becoming everything that my ancestors dreamed about. And I think that's where we start creating a different generation of like all these liberated black folks. I agree. People need to chill more. Yes. You're right. Like my grandfather didn't do all like this fucking real estate work and shit for like me to keep like me to keep doing it. He's just wanted me to have fun. He's like, yeah, he's like, my life's miserable. (laughs) So yours cannot be miserable. How the fuck are you miserable? You know, it's, it's the truth. This is just um, a funny question. If you had to treat one of them, mm-hmm. who would you rather treat? Kanye West, Kyrie Irving. Oh, this is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> that was a joke. That was yeah. a joke. But, but uh, if you if you want to answer, you can. I was just messing around. It's interesting because like being a therapist, I've worked with so many people. And I'm, I had I'm this sure. over like like thousands and like now like people could say the wildest things and i'm just sitting there like yep you know what i mean like because i've just got that like lens and so honestly i work with both because i would be interested like how does your mind conceptualize these ideas 
you know, like, how did we get here? Like, and so I like knowing those things about people. So I just like, I start with either, you know, that sounds good. And that sounds good. And that's a very diplomatic answer. And I respect <laughs> you staying true, staying true to your title. And the last question is, are you happy today? I actually am like, I'm in a really great space right before the new year. Like you said, I'm, of course, like the holiday came, it took all the energy, but recently I've just been like relaxing and writing and being in flow. So I'm really happy right now. I stole enough of your time and enough of your uh, free treatment, but I wanted to tell you, I'm so happy that you came on today. It was very refreshing for me to talk about a lot of these things. And, you know, the best thing about the show is I get to listen and learn so much. And for the other people, you know, who are listening to the show or watching the show, if they want to learn more about you, where can they find you on the internet? Absolutely. So you can find me at blackandembodied.com, which is my website, or on Black and Embodied on Instagram as well. And so those are the places where you can find me and be on the lookout for my upcoming book coming out next year. All right, guys, listen, you've been listening to Off the Cuff. A very, very, very special thank you again to Alicia McCullough. Thank you so much for all your help today for me. And, uh, you know, looking forward uh, to seeing you down the road, I hope. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Off the Cuff, presented to you by 101 Life. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and send us some love with a review. And don't forget, we're all in this together and you're never alone. Peace. Fate Entertainment. Ah!